are new, uh, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We love the Word of God. Amen? And uh, we preach through books of the Bible and uh, unpack the scriptures and praying, and more importantly than us, unpacking them that they unpack us. And, and so we're submitting to God's Word, and, and I'm going to cover so, some ground this morning. Um, and so I'll call out the scripture references uh, in 2 Samuel, but they'll also be on the screen uh, behind me as well. All right, chapter 16, verses 23 is where we'll start. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahathophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahathophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahathophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archite, also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hashai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahathophel spoken, Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hashai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahathophel has given is not good. Hashai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is ex. Your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose hearts is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahathophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahathophel, so that the Lord might bring harm to Absalom. Now down to chapter 18, verses 5 through 9. And the king, that's King David, ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head was caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. 
verses 31 through 33 of chapter 18. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said to King David, Good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered him, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, what I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Researchers say that we make on average 35,000, an adult makes on average 35,000 decisions a day, every day. Um, Researchers at Cornell actually said of those 35,000, we make on average 226 decisions around food every day, which I just found kind of uniquely interesting. Some of you are making a decision about where to eat afterwards, right? Um, Decisions are part of our life. The complexity of decisions vary. With each decision we make, the text today is riddled with decisions. Decisions and consequences to those decisions by those who make the decisions and those who have no choice in the decision. You see, as Christians, our desire should be, right, to act and to live and to make decisions in our lives that are truly wise, that honor Christ, that are faithful to God's word. But that begs the question, what is wisdom? What does it mean to make decisions that are truly wise? Like what is real godly wisdom look like? And I think in these three chapters, the end of 16, 17, 18, and as we'll all get into actually 19 a little bit, because I think that's this whole section, we're going to see many decisions on the surface that are made in the name of wisdom that are not. What I call counterfeit wisdom, pseudo-wisdom, fake wisdom. And for each of us, what I want us to take inventory of and to think about around the decisions that we make each and every day, that our decisions that we make reveal where our real source of wisdom truly lies. Is it in ourselves? Is it in the fear of man or those around us? Or truly is our source of wisdom the word of God, the things of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ? And I feel like I'm saying this every week because it's true, but uh, we find ourselves in this story in the middle of a very complicated narrative. And what I mean by narrative is just a story, right, of David's life playing out, his son Absalom, his advisors, and other people. This is a complicated scene. And to be honest, it's complicated, one, because of the cultural waters that we swim in. We, we don't really, we're not, we're not big fans, if you're honest. We're not, we, we love story and we love narratives and we love things like that, but we love receiving information in sound bites, in little statements. 
We love sourcing truth, if you will, right, or wisdom in lists that can be handed to us and go, this is what wisdom is, this is what wisdom looks like, go and do. How many of you like, believe that? Even to some degree, our theology has, has been crafted and molded, not by a narrative or a story, but by sound bites, by these little nuggets that we can grasp. It's interesting what the scriptures do oftentimes, like what they've done to us in First and Second Samuel repeatedly. They throw us into the deep end, right? They cast us into this story, this narrative that has all of these complexities, that have, has honestly more unanswered questions than it does answered questions. And we're left wondering, okay, what is the wise decision in this scene or in this scenario? What's the, what's the wisdom of the Lord look like played out in this, in this complex, diverse, in this, this multifaceted scene, scenario? And I would suggest to you that that is where we live our lives, we live our lives in the complicated. We live our lives in the complex, if you will. All the nuance, all of the different ways in which we can go about our lives, seeking, as believers, hear me, honestly, to live under God's wisdom. Now, there are imperatives that God gives us. There are things he tells us explicitly. But there are many times where he leaves us and he leads us into this place of deep complexity, so that we'll have to maybe deepen our understanding of who he is and what he's about. We'll have to maybe widen our horizon and our soundbite theology and go, what is the heart of God in this very complicated story? And so we approach another complicated narrative. A complicated narrative where the discipline of the Lord to David is still on display. The consequences and the ripple effect of his sin here on earth are still being felt. Where David is being forced in many ways to re-engage with what's going on around him in Israel and what's going on between he and the Lord, which, by the way, is a gift. See, too often we don't listen to the writer of Hebrews where we want to separate the discipline of the Lord from the love of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord to David's life and the love of the Lord here are connected together. Going with David, going before David, we see this complicated scene where I'll pick up in, in verse 15. Now, I'm not going to describe the scene there. You can read it for your own. We, we want children to be in our context, so therefore I'm going to uh, kind of shield from how I describe what takes place at the end of chapter 16. You can read it on your own. However, I want you just to know it is a very explicit scene where Ahathophel, one of David's counselors, tells him to go and do this. Right At the palace, is, is, is Absalom, David's son, has taken uh, Jerusalem. And this is a power move. This is a power move by Ahathophel and by Absalom in many ways to strike back at the heart of David in revenge, in getting back to him, maybe even to cast shadow upon David, to remind him of what he did and his failure with Bathsheba those several chapters ago. It's public humiliation of David. It's highlighting Absalom's rise to power. And then we get into chapter 17, where Absalom is trying to figure out how he's going to essentially get rid of David, rule the kingdom. He must get rid of David. And in this scene, as I describe, I hope you have, keep your Bibles open. Absalom has two advisors. 
Ahathophel, who I've just described, who gave him the counsel at the end of chapter 16, you need to understand that Ahathophel is revered as essentially the wisest man in all of Jerusalem. Right? I don't know if he's specifically called that, but that's how he's treated. You say, Kyle, where do you get that? Look at verse 23 of chapter 16. This is how Ahathophel, the first counselor, was treated. Ahathophel gave, the counsel that Ahathophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God, meaning that Ahathophel's counsel, when it was given, was equal to the word of God. It's not talking about Ahathophel uh, considering what God was saying. It's like this dude's counsel was as if God said it himself. That's how much his word and his counsel was revered, not just by Absalom, but prior by David. In Psalm 55, David talks about Ahathophel, who is now sided with his, his son Absalom in the revolt. And he talks about how much of a, a how, how painful this is. Ahathophel was not just a friend of David, he was like family to him, who has now betrayed him and is now giving counsel against David to his son in the revolt. But his word was treated with equality with the word of the Lord. That should be a warning for us. That there can be people in our lives, there can be people we listen to, and we treat the wisdom that they give us equal to the wisdom and weight of the word of the Lord. Ahathophel was given that kind of weight. And Ahathophel's counsel goes like this, verses 1 through 4. He says, uh, uh, Absalom, here's what I'll do. I'll choose 12,000 men, and we'll go. And I'll, I'll take over David. I will show up to them. It's like this surprise attack. Notice how many times in verses 1 through 4, how many times Ahathophel says, I will. I will do this. I will do this. I will. And he, he goes, listen, Absalom, you only want one man dead, David. He said, so let's not kill anybody. Let's try not to kill anybody else and bring them all back to you like a bride coming back to her groom. But you stay here, my man. You stay here. You're Absalom. And Absalom and the elders, they hear this counsel. And honestly, from a strategic standpoint, you need to know this. Ahathophel was right. From strategy and the way this could have went down military, Ahathophel's right. And so they hear this, and Absalom, this is verse 4, and, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and the elders of Israel, going, this guy's always been right, so I'm sure he's right again. Except you need to know this, that who is superintending all of this is not Absalom, it's not David, it's not Ahathophel, it's the Lord. And if you remember from last week, David prayed a prayer about Ahathophel in verse 31 of chapter 15, where David goes, make the counsel of Ahathophel seem like foolishness to Absalom. But right now in verse 4, it doesn't seem like that prayer is being answered, does it? But there's another counselor, Hushai, who the Lord has raised up, who is pro-David, who is on David's side. And by the way, David is still king. Let's not forget, Absalom is not king. David is still the anointed king of Israel. So Hushai, being loyal to David, enters back into Jerusalem, and he has this incredibly difficult job of giving counsel to Absalom, one, that is better than Ahathophel, and second, that it also benefits David. So think about that. So he's got to give counsel where Absalom doesn't sniff out that Hushai is going to go back to David and then also the counsel has to benefit him. And so, so he asks, Absalom asks Hushai, what do you think? 
about Ahithophel's counsel. And Hushai, you know, can you imagine the scene? He goes, well, I know usually you listen to him. And usually I do too. Usually his counsel's good. But he goes, not this time. And so Hushai begins to lay out the plan for Absalom of here's what you need to do. Here's the second option. And it's not this sneak attack immediately, but it's building this grand scene. Did you hear it? Where Hushai says, from Dan to Beersheba, all of Israel, from the north to the south, they need to, they need to know and they need to be present when this battle takes place. And here's what you need to do, Absalom. You don't need to relegate it to someone else doing it, Ahathophel or those men. You need to do it. Isn't that what he says? You need to go to battle in person is the exact language in 2 Samuel 17. This is Hushai going to Absalom, going, you need to do this in person. Absalom, you're the only one who needs to get credit for defeating David. You don't want anyone else getting credit for this. And what happens in that moment, you can imagine, based upon what we know about Absalom, is that it ignites his imagination and inflates his what? Ego. For those of you that weren't with us last week, how did the scriptures define Absalom? He was a man who was out without blemish from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. He was perfect in stature, was this physical stretch. He was a guy who cared, who was, let's be honest, was all about himself, right? Absalom loved him some Absalom. It said he would cut his hair once a year, right? And that's part of being a Nazarite, he cut his hair. Was, but he wouldn't just cut his hair. It said he weighed it, right? It was like, came weighing in at four to five pounds. Like this is, in which we're going to talk about his hair in a second, okay? But you need to know why the, ba- the Bible paints these pictures. It's not just superfluous information. It's purposeful information for us as readers and hearers to understand who Absalom is. So Hushai, this, this, this counsel that he's giving him, what is it feeding? It's feeding the very thing that is going to be the detriment of Absalom. It's feeding his ego, his vanity, his sinful ambition, and his desire. And he looks at that, and he goes, wait a minute, yeah, Ahithophel, in his wisdom, he was saying a lot of I wills, I wills, I wills. Hushai, you put me in the center. I kind of like that. And so it says what his conclusion is. And Absalom and all the men of Israel, the council of Hushai the Archite, is better than the council of Ahithophel. See how quickly on a dime he changed to make his decision now? But just in case we get confused on who we think's in charge, look at verse 14, the end of it. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Who ordained it? Who saw it fit? It wasn't Hushai's eloquence. It wasn't his plan. It was that the Lord ordained it and used Hushai to accomplish the Lord's purpose. And so here we go. The plan is now rolling out. The decision is made. The spies are going out. The priests who have been in Jerusalem who are pro-David go out and they tell him. And Hushai makes sure that King David gets the word on what's going to take place. And the word also makes it to Ahithophel. Look down in verse 23 of chapter 17. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, something he probably wasn't very familiar with, by the way, he saddled his donkey and went off, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Decision. 
Remember, Ahithophel and David were close. Very, very close. Ahithophel knew, potentially, that since his advice had been rejected, and that if David took Jerusalem again or came back in Jerusalem, there was no way that he lived. Or was he mistaken? Was the wisdom even in this moment for Ahithophel faulty? We'll never know. Because Ahithophel took matters into his own hands. For Ahithophel, he had no room for mercy in his own life from David. And this maybe even becomes more tragic as we'll conclude 2 Samuel, and you will see the way in which David treats his enemies with mercy, with grace. The man who betrayed David, taking ultimately his life here. Does this kind of response to betrayal sound familiar to you? Maybe someone else from the New Testament, Judas, Ahithophel by some scholars is called the Judas of the Old Testament. The one who betrays David is a pointer to the one, Judas, who would betray the son of David, Jesus. A tragic end to this man's life. But an end of where pseudo or fake or faulty wisdom will get you. We'll see that again here in a few verses. Okay, so now we have this scene set. The war, the stage is set. David is understood by his spies. He's received the information. In verse 4, <clears throat> David meets with his advisors. And the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. What he means by that is, I'm going to be over here on the sidelines. So during this battle with Absalom, David is not actually in the fight physically. He's not in the fight. He's sidelined. And if you've been with us in 1 and 2 Samuel, it's interesting how often in these major pivotal moments of the, of the scriptures that David finds himself where? On the sideline. In, in, in some of it, I would just say maybe only one time is it by choice. The other times, it's actually the Lord sidelining him. You remember where Saul is going against the Philistines and the Philistines are there because David's going to do like a, a run around on him, right? It, he, he does what? The kings put him on the sideline. And that's where Saul's, Saul's life is taken and David rises up and he, he's, he's king. He's thrown, enthroned as king, right? But here we see David sidelined again. Why? Why is David not in the center of these like super epic moments, right? These pivotal moments because I believe God wants to, to make clear that he is the one who brings about victory. He's the one who is superintending all of these things. He's the one who's in charge of everything. Don't be, don't be mistaken for a moment to think it's David's ingenuity, that it's David's strength, it's, it's David's men loyal to him. It is God alone who is bringing about these turns and these changes. He is the one who is in control of it all. And so we see David sitting on the sideline. However, he's still king. And he gives his commanders in verse 5 an order. And he ordered Joab, who, Joab, if you've been with us, he is David's commander and has been for a long, long time. And he gives his other commanders this command. Listen to me. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Notice he says the young man Absalom, not my son Absalom. We'll get to that in just a, a little bit. But here's how I want you to deal with him. 
gently. And you're like, Kyle, does this mean like gently like killing him softly, you know? Not to bring that song up, but like, does this mean, you know, like, like deal with him like, oh, aren't you so sweet? Gotcha, you know? No, this means, no, I want you to bring him to me. When you find him, if you're able to get him, I want you to deal with him gently and bring him to me. That's, that's the context here that David is giving this command with. Okay, keep that in mind. And now this just scene kind of gets comical, but it's so tragic and it's, it's so heartbreaking uh, in the same. And uh, verse 8 is where I want to start in, in chapter 18. It says, The battle spread over the face of all the country. And it says, And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Like, do we have like a Lord of the Rings moment? I've never seen it, but I've heard from my teach team that there's this Lord of the Rings moment, like where, you know, trees are swollen. No, okay, like that's a bad interpretation. I don't care what Michael Key says, okay? That's a bad interpretation of the text. What it's simply saying is that the, the thick, how thick the forest was, like it, it was just the terrain was causing people to lose their lives more so than even the sword. He's like, how, where do you get that? Well, what, the scene that happens next with Absalom, get this. And so it's so thick, it's devouring people. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, meaning David's army, or David's commanders. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. All right, so get this. Remember Absalom, his five-pound dew, okay? Riding a mule, or could be translated a donkey, in battle. Why wouldn't my man ride in a horse? Good question, right? Here's why. There's a reason. Because a donkey or a mule was in a symbol for a king. It's what kings rode on. It was symbolic of the kingdom that he was taking from David. So he's riding a mule with his five-pound dew up on his head or maybe hanging down. I don't know how he wore it, okay? He's riding that mule, in, and the, it is so thick that a great oak tree captures his head. And I don't, mean, I don't know if it's by his hair or his head, but he is hanging there. Look, it says literally suspended between heaven and on earth. So between heaven and earth, he's hanging there. Get in that scene for a moment. And David's army walks up. And I didn't mention this in the first service, but I was thinking a little bit about the time where Saul is relieving himself in the cave that we walked through in 1 Samuel. And David and his men are in the cave, and he's like, what do we do with this one? You know? Like, do we just take him out? And you remember that scene where David's like, no way, he's God's anointed, right? Beautiful scene. But you have to see that it's similar. And so here, these, 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 these leaders, these, these warriors, David's commanders see this. But let's think about what has actually taken place with Absalom. He's literally hanging by his crown the thing he prided himself in, his image, his physical appearance, his ego is literally suspending him between heaven and earth. Held by his crown, held by what he held as dear is now holding him before these commanders. And to take it a step further, it tells us where the mule went. And while the, while the mule that was under him went on, the kingdom, the crown is holding him, his kingdom riding on. Absalom in this vulnerable place. 
where his ego, no doubt, got him there. His sinful ambition, his deadly ambition, his vanity. But what, what was the word of the king to his commanders? Deal gently with Absalom. Now let's look at another decision. Verse 14. The other soldiers, we're not, we're not touching him. We're not, we're not harming him. And then verse 14, Joab rolls up on the scene and he says, I will not waste time like this with you. I'm not going to waste the time. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Can you hear the voice of Joab reasoning his decision like I can? This is the guy who has come against our king, God's king, the anointed one. He's hanging in a tree by his hair. He is here before us. He's the one who forced us out of Jerusalem. He's the one who put us back in the wilderness. Let's end this thing now. I'm not going to waste any more time. I don't think David was in his right mind when he said that I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to take matters into my own hands now. So guys, step back and I'll take care of this. Wisdom or folly? Depends how you define wisdom. Joab thought this was wisdom. You say, Kyle, well then what would wisdom be? The picture that James chapter three in our Bible, the New Testament, paints of wisdom, struck me through this passage this week. Look at it. Listen to this. Lay your life and your decisions against this definition of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, hmm, Absalom much? Possibly Joab in this? Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Three things I don't want any of my decisions to be known as. Earthly, as of this earth, unspiritual, and demonic. No thanks for that trifecta, right? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God is this, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, uh-oh, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's wisdom. That's the wisdom that rolls down from God. That's the wisdom that the king, King David, was giving to his commanders in how to deal with Absalom. Deal with him gently. As I quoted last week, Eugene Peterson, the same applies to this, that Joab had the acts or action of righteousness with no roots in righteousness. He didn't understand the bigger story, the bigger thing at play here. He just wanted to execute what he thought was righteousness, and that was to take Absalom's life. How often are we guilty of taking matters into our own hands and calling it wisdom from God when it's really folly or wisdom from this world? Think about some of the decisions 
Think about some of the choices we make in our life. And so then this news of Absalom's death travels back to David. You see, David, um, we cannot forget, he is king, but he's also father here. In this place, this torment where he's receiving information, remember he wasn't out there, where he's hoping in some way that his love for his son and the justice for Israel might be able to come together. We see don't. Where love and justice don't meet. And in a scene that probably most of you are familiar with, David receives this information about Absalom. And look at it in verse 33. What does he say repeatedly? Not young man Absalom, young man Absalom, but what? My son, my son, my son, my son. You can check me on this but I don't know of any place in the earlier chapters that we walk through where David refers to Absalom, at least lately, as his son until this moment. You see, in the Hebrew language, when something's repeated like, my son, my son, it's like for us, it's like texting in all caps, okay? Like you're supposed to pay attention. It's meant to emphasize something. It's meant to emphasize David's heart toward his son Absalom. What exactly is happening in David's heart? I don't know. I know his words within verse 33 says this, that I would have died instead of you. That his love as a father is going out to his son. That David wanted to take Absalom's place but he couldn't. At least he couldn't do that and save the kingdom. Possibly David felt in this moment and understood his own part to play in Absalom's demise and his death. And David in this moment is feeling the consequences and weight of his sin and it's overwhelming. Possibly David is having a flashback, I believe it's to chapter 14 of 2 Samuel where Absalom wants to come to him. And David says, no, I don't want to see you. And he's thinking, what if I wouldn't have rejected my son in that moment? Maybe my son wouldn't have rejected me. David, in all honesty here, faced an impossible situation. To save his life in the kingdom meant the death of his son. To save his son meant the loss of David's life. And David is hit with that complexity. He's hit with that kind of weight. In the first verses, first eight verses of chapter 19, Joab, the commander who took Absalom's life, is watching, watching David mourn his son. And he looks at David, and in true Joab fashion, he's like, why do you love more? the one who wanted to take your life, than the men who saved your life, who rescued you from Joab? Like, great question by Joab, right? I think probably asked with the wrong heart, but a good question. You say, Kyle, what is a narrative like this supposed to teach us or, or show us, right? 
And again, I don't have three pretty prepackaged points for you. But I think this text and this narrative and this story again highlights and shows the inadequacy of King David. That he is merely a shadow of the real king that we all desperately need. David cannot save Absalom. He can't in any form or any fashion. That our hearts like David's, are longing for a real king. Our hearts, much like Absalom, in the ways that we rebel against the king, trying to set up our own kingdom in our own way, being about our vain pursuits and our vain glory more than we are about the glory of our king. But what happens? What happens when that is really revealed about you and me? What happens when the true who we are really reveals itself? When it's the inadequacy of me being able to figure it out. When it's revealed that I'm really more about the kingdom of Kyle than I am about the kingdom of God. What happens when that's revealed to you and me? How do you respond? What's the decision you make? Do you press even more? I think option one is you press more into self-preservation. You, you, you press and lean heavily into the external, the things you believe you can control and take control of. Making your own way. Sourcing your wisdom, rooting your wisdom, not in the wisdom of God, but in the, the source of self. In you. I would say that's what Absalom did. That's the way he found himself making decisions in his life. David, what we've seen from him, might be considered option two, where David disengaged from life. The life of Israel, his life before the Lord. When David was revealed for who he was, he disengaged, stopping to work, stopped loving, stopped surrendering, stopped inquiring of the Lord. David, maybe in many ways in chapter 14, not wanting to see Absalom is part of his disengagement. When I thought about David saying to this, his son, Absalom, hey, I don't want to see you, or don't, you, don't come close to me. I thought about the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son that shows us the heart of the father, the true father, our perfect father, that though we've wandered, though we've squandered, though we've rebelled, when we come back home, what does the father do? What does the true father do? The perfect father, what does he do? He throws off everything and runs to meet us. And in the middle of us trying to justify, trying to us give our reasons for why, or trying to say, I'm sorry, he does what? He goes, shh. And he covers us with his grace and his mercy and welcomes us back. And maybe David feels that his heart and the heart of God are not mirroring one another, so he disengages. Or the third option, and I pray this is the option that we will take in wisdom, and this is where we will see David headed by God's grace, is that we begin to engage back humbly. We begin to reorient and re-engage our lives back through true wisdom to the God of the universe knowing that we cannot ultimately control this life and the outcomes in this life that are inevitable to occur, that our lives are in the hands of a good and sovereign God, and that it's from that source of wisdom we lead and live our lives. So what's wisdom? 
I'm thankful that Jesus didn't just show up on this earth and go, here's what wisdom is. Here's the list. I did it. You do it. But no, he shows up on this earth and goes, I don't want to just give you a list. I'm going to give you myself. Myself. What's wisdom? Jesus goes, look no further than how I live my life. And here's how I live my life. Paul recorded it perfectly in Philippians 2. Look at this. In verse 4, we'll start down a little bit further. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Why? That's the, way, that's the wisdom of the world. Look out for you. You're number one. Make sure you're taken care of. But as Christians, we have an upside-down ethic. We have an upside-down kingdom. Here's what it looks like. Have this mind among yourselves, Christians, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Next verse. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. That's wisdom, church that the God of the universe would humble himself in such a way to literally lay down his whole life for you. So we just sang a song talking about, I lay my whole life down for you. I'll give you my whole life, right? Jesus does not ask something of us. He hasn't infinitely and eternally done before us. He laid his whole life down for you. So imagine, right? We just sang a couple hundred people of us singing that together. Imagine the only person that it makes a difference that he lays down his life before us standing up here going, listen, I laid my whole life down for you, for you. How would you respond to that? You see, that's going to radically affect everything. Every decision, every thought, every action May it be baptized in the wisdom and humility of Christ Jesus, the one who laid down his life for you. And goes, you want to know what wisdom is? Jesus goes, look at me. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, communion every week, and if you need, the, if you need to receive the elements, our hosts are... In the back, you can slip up your hand and they'll, they'll come to you. Communion puts us face to face with a decision. Do I really believe the very thing that these elements represent in my hands? That his body was broken for me so that I may be made whole that his life was the payment for my sins. Listen, our sin, my sin, your sin, had a payment attached to it. That the only payment accepted by a perfect and holy God is a perfect and holy payment that came through his son, Christ Jesus. That I come to this place of decision every week as I take and receive these elements, asking myself, do I really believe the gospel that I intellectually know? Think about some of the decisions you've made, the choices you've made in your life. Are they consistent with the wisdom of the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ that says your debt has been paid in me. And that when you trust in me, 
I recreate in you a new life. The old is gone and the new has come. Are you living out of that new life reality that Jesus brings? That wisdom. That wisdom that says treat others better than you treat yourselves. Exalt others. The line Jesus uses over and over again. You want to find yourself? What do you have to do? Lose yourself. To gain is by losing? Yeah. And so we come to this place, this table, this meal of invitation this morning. And I want you to stand with me as we prepare to take it. And Christian, I want you to listen to me carefully. Believing the gospel is not just for those in this room who are unbelievers. Believing the gospel is for you and me today. Believing again, holding fast to what we know to be true. Doubling down on our zeal and affection for Jesus, the one who has redeemed us and saved us the filter, the lens by which we live our whole lives, that when we fall, we reorient back to that goodness and that grace. But that message, hear me, and make no mistake about it, is also for those of you in here who haven't trusted in Christ, who haven't fully surrendered their lives to King Jesus, that your heart, whether you know it or not, is searching for a king. And I'd guess you've been propping yourself up as king over your life. And it might work for a moment. It might work for a really long time. But I'm praying that at some point, the grace and love of God would so collide with you to see the counterfeit wisdom of propping yourself up as king, what it really produces. And you'd see that there's really only one king. There's really only one way. And that's through this perfect life of the God-man, Jesus. And so I'd invite you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus and take these elements, take communion for the first time with us. And maybe you say, Kyle, I'm just, I'm not there yet. Listen, this is a, a meal for the faith family. We'd ask that you just abstain from taking this with us. And so believers, let's prepare our hearts right now to take communion. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he told his disciples, as he would tell us, that this bread is broken for you. It's his body. Let's take his body together. In the same manner, Jesus took the cup. And he said that this cup is my blood, meaning that his blood is the payment. It's the new covenant, to use Jesus' language. The old covenant, the law, is fulfilled, Jesus says, in me. You are covered by my precious blood alone. When you trust me, when you put your faith in me, Jesus says, this payment is applied to you. Jesus goes, my righteousness is your righteousness. My perfection is your perfection. And so we raise the cup of salvation and we take it together, remembering our great salvation. Church, the, the only fitting response after communion is what? Worship. Let's worship our God in prayer right now. Father, we thank you and we love you. 
Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who redeems us and saves us, but who is also king over our lives. And Father, I pray as we go from here this week, Lord, we would understand him as that beautiful and great and glorious king, Lord, sovereign over everything. Father, that we would live and have every fiber of our being done for his glory. And so, Lord, show us what that means. Show us what that means in our parenting, in our marriages, in our working, in our our friendships, in our gospel community. Show us what that looks like, Holy Spirit. I love you. Thank you for this time in your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Our pastors and elders and prayer team will be down front. We'd love to pray with you.